With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, April 5th, the Roseanne is Back edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in New York, as always, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Um, so before we get into our topics, I will say one, thank you listeners for all your how to raise boys tips. I feel like we've gotten a ton of them over the last couple of weeks. But the thing I actually want to talk about in our listener email this week is Cardi B and the people who were offended that we didn't mention Cardi B's implants. Like, why were we using Cardi B as a model for women given the implants. I don't really know what to say about that. I didn't even think about that. It's I just figure it's like how celebrities are, you know? You guys have anything to say? Do you feel bad about that? I don't. I mean, <laughs> choice feminism. I'm I'm happy to toggle back and forth between choice feminism and any other kind of I don't know. I just I, yeah, it, it doesn't for, bug me. And for me it's uh, as I think I said last time, this is like living under capitalism. She found that she got more she had more money. Once she had implants and uh, she uh, she made that choice. Is that the ideal world that I would love to live in? No. Is it reality? I, it was certainly her. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's like we wouldn't be like we wouldn't criticize an actress for dyeing her hair blonde. You know what? They're sure. I understand the breast implants are a different thing, but it seems like a strange thing to focus on, given the totality of Cardi B. And I feel like we give her a pass because she owns it, you know? She's all about it. It's not like she's trying to hide. (laughs) Right. She is definitely not trying to hide. Exactly. All right. So our topics for today, um, another woman who takes up a room, Roseanne. The comedy series is back after 20 years. How do we reconcile the show, which was groundbreaking for women, with its creator, who's a Trump supporter, who regularly tweets 4chan-style conspiracy theories? We talk about that. Second, the trial of Noor Salman, the wife of the Orlando Pulse shooter, Was it right to put her on trial? We talk with special guest Rachel Louise Snyder, who's been covering the trial for The New Yorker. And finally, Thabies. That's how you pronounce it, right, Noreen? Yes. Thabies. Rhymes with babies. (laughs) Yes. Thabies raised as a they. We talk about a new generation of parents who decline to tell the world what gender their baby and toddler is. And then our Slate Plus this week... June, you want to say what it is? Yes, on Slate Plus this week, we'll be asking if it is right for New York State authorities to make a case against The Wing, a women-only kind of workspace here in New York City and soon expanding throughout the United States. Uh, is it okay to have women-only spaces these days? If you want to hear that segment and generally support Slate's journalism, you can learn more about Slate Plus at slate.com slash xx plus. All right, let's jump in. 
Roseanne, a comedy series back after 20 years with much of its original cast all grown up. It's about a working class family in the Midwest facing lots of working class family type issues. They are short on money. They can't afford medicine. Everyone fights. Roseanne Connor on the show is a Trump supporter and so is Roseanne Barr, the show's creator, only in a very different way. So the show, A, has gotten really good ratings and B, has generated a huge amount of political discussion, which is very unusual for a sitcom. So let's start kind of back in the day just to get our feet on the ground. Did either of you have a relationship with the original show, June? Like, did you, did Roseanne play any role in your life? Did you watch it? Did you think about it when it was up and running yeah, originally? I watched all nine seasons, I'm pretty sure, including the, the, the what everybody except Roseanne agrees was the terrible last one. Um, and in fact, in a weird way, you know, Noreen was asking me for some recommendations from episodes from back then. And all I could remember was the weird final season. Um, <laughs> so which is like a, a terrible indictment in some ways. But like, you know, I have vague uh, memories of, um, you know, like a lesbian storyline that they did where Roseanne kissed Mariel Hemingway. I mean, so I have these very vague memories. But this was the day. These were the days when you just kind of watched television. You know, you didn't uh, binge it. You just kind of sat there every week and watched it. So it doesn't surprise me that my memories are like, I remember when they started their loose meat shop, you know. So I have these these vague scattered memories. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I watched it. And what about her as a character? Like, did she, what, what did she represent in television history? Like her show, her as the creator of the show, like what was important about that show? Well, I think, you know, the thing that everybody talks about that is, yes, impossible to ignore is the fact that these that this was an unapologetic, undisguised uh, working class family. You know, Roseanne Barr uh, was very much the Roseanne that, yes, Roseanne Connor was a character, but Roseanne Barr was a really huge, powerful force in the creation of that show and in the in the storylines of the show, uh, she was the the very center of the show. It was about struggles, uh, and it was, uh, you know, about struggles, really basic struggles like around money and around, uh, you know, all all comedy in a way is about struggle. All comedy has conflict somewhere in it, uh, but these were, you know, what are generally referred to as relatable struggles, um, and uh, you know that that. I don't know if it was groundbreaking in terms of television history, but uh, in the 90s when it aired, uh, that it was at the time, as far as I can remember, the only show of its kind. I actually do not have much of a, or any really relationship to Roseanne. Um, I was a kid and when, when I was on the air the first time and my parents were strict about television in general and Roseanne in particular was one of the shows they thought was crude. Um and I think that's actually sort of a common thing that was some people's reaction to the show and watching it now, I can't understand why if you had kids, you wouldn't necessarily want them to to like pick up on some of the humor. Um, so it was I was sort of coming to it fresh uh, with like a vague, like, you know, when you flip through the channels, you you understand it. They were those characters were such a part of uh, the consciousness then that I did have a vague understanding of who Darlene was and who Jackie was, et cetera, et cetera, but was not really a watcher. 
What about you, Hannah? So I it, it came out when I was in college, which was not a TV watching right. time. But my mother has a relationship with Roseanne from the more feminist angle, and I'm not sure feminist is the right word here. More from a kind of loudmouth woman who is mm-hmm. transgressive and doesn't care. You know, the same as her relationship with um, Joan Rivers or Chelsea Handler, both women that she also likes. Just these female comedians who say and do whatever they want and kind of live by their own rules and make up their own reality. Uh, so that's who she represented in my life. And she still is that woman. Now, one of the magic tricks of the show, and I don't know if this did anything for you, Noreen, I did watch it spottily with my mother. You know, it's interesting, first of all, how they opened the show, the new mm-hmm. the new show. I love that. Um, they opened it with Roseanne and John Goodman in bed, and he's got this mask over his face. Hank Stuver, the Washington Post critic, described it as almost like they were cryogenically frozen. And he <laughs> says, you know, why does everyone think I'm dead? Well, it's because they said he was dead when, you know, the last time the show was on. But but it's kind of a really clever trick because you're sort of right there in their intimacy. You know, it was a very smart opening scene. And then to have the same actresses play, for example, the sisters, which is a great relationship, the most interesting relationship in the show, I think, Darlene and Becky. That's cool. You know, it's like interest if if you have some relationship with the show it's interesting to see them kind of in a realistic way what they are like now as parents kind of where their lives have landed you know the the, the choices they've made kind of played out 20 years later that's interesting then yeah. that's completely groundbreaking as far as I can tell. I mean, that 21 years after a show went off the air, it returns with the same actors. I mean, yes, there are some new actors, but basically everyone's back. And that's astonishing. Uh, and I, you know, yes, the, the first episode or the first two episodes, which are back to back, had this enormous uh, ratings. And I wonder to what extent that's about people wanting to just see these actors again and want to see what they look like now. Well, I also think, I mean, it's getting a lot of attention, the ratings, and people are saying, you know, this is this is the same underserved market that, uh, you know, that brought us Trump, right? That everyone has been ignoring this huge swath of the country that just wants to watch shows about working class people, not on the coast. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not that person. I'm not a Trump voter. But I found it actually incredibly refreshing to watch something that was not set in Silver Lake, you know, <laughs> and was not about a TV writer. And the production values felt so like out of time. Uh, it, it felt like a like a a staged play on television, you know, it's yeah. just everything about it's felt so different than than what I'm used to watching. Um, and, you know, they brought back the the set that felt a little bit out of time. But yeah, it it just even to someone like, yeah, I live in Brooklyn, I work in media. And even to me, it felt like, yeah, this is like nice to see something that is not just the same hermetic version of whoever's writing these TV shows reflected back at me. Now, have you ever watched The Middle? I haven't. Because it's a, it's also a working class show set in the Midwest. It's set in Indiana. Um, but to me, it it is what in England we would call the middle is more like the respectable working class, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like I would say the kind of working class family that I grew up in where you're all about like you don't want to look, you know, you don't want anybody to stare and notice that, you know, you're poor, for example, whereas Roseanne doesn't give a crap. And Roseanne, I went pretty deep on the history of Roseanne because I didn't I didn't know much about it. She rejects the term blue collar, right? Mm-hmm. She thinks it's a class it like is a classist term. And so she embraces working class. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure. Sh- sure what the distinction she's making in her mind but but i just thought that was interesting i mean she like her whole politics is based around not covering anything up and sort of like 
telling it like it is. And I actually found her early radical feminist anger, the the domestic goddess anger to be mm-hmm. endlessly fascinating. And and that, Hannah, is what your mom is so into in her, right? That kind of like... Yeah. Can you describe what you mean by feminist anger? And then let's move on to the actual political controversies. But describe what you mean by like her initial feminist anger, because that was a little missing from the debates that we've been having now about her. What do you mean by that? Well, so she was someone who dropped out of high school. She had a really tough background that I didn't know much about. She's actually from um, Utah. Uh, yeah, Utah. She's from a, a like a working class Jewish family in Utah and had some relationship to the Mormon church. Um, but she dropped out of high school, got pregnant, uh, worked as a waitress, and then began doing comedy that was sort of based off of her experience of being, um, you know, like a mother of three, and it sounds like a wife who wasn't treated as with kid gloves, right? So so it was a lot of, like, um, it was a lot of, like, men are like this kind of humor. Like, they, there was a particular New Yorker article that I read that if anyone is interested in uh, the history of Roseanne, it's pretty great. It's by John Lahr from 1995. Anyway, he tells the story of the first time she, like, thought that she was getting her voice as a comic was she told a joke about um, Jackie O and the reason that Jackie O had um, had, you know, was had climbed out of the car when her husband was shot was because because her husband had spilled his head all over the place and she knew she'd have to clean it up. So like, that's a really dark joke. Right. But it has this tinge of, you know, like, women just have to get everything done and men are a little bit useless. And, you know, why are we not, um, why, are, why are we treated this way? You know, kind of like anger at, at, yeah, at the way women are treated as a class and particularly as a class in heterosexual relationships. She, you know, as she was becoming a comic, she got really involved in like radical feminist politics. Um, and would perform in the sort of the parking lot of feminist bookstores. Yeah, right. Right up your alley, June. And she actually seems to have gotten in kind of like a fight with with like lesbian feminists and felt that they were excluding her for being in a straight relationship. I mean, just the the, the politics of that time and Roseanne in that time are super fascinating to me. And then I think she'd said, you know, screw it. I'm going to go mainstream and and um, speaking of vernacular again, but she did a lot of like academic reading about feminism, it seems like. Yeah. So that part of Roseanne is sort of forgotten in this moment, essentially because the debate is around her being a Trump voter, both the character and the woman Roseanne. So in the first episode, there's a very on the nose rift between her and her sister, Jackie, who comes in wearing a pink hat and a nasty woman T-shirt. And you know, that's the political argument at the kitchen table. What did you guys think of that? It was a very, you know, I would say obvious mm-hmm. sort of political statement in that first episode. Uh, what did that do for you? I mean, to me, this is uh, something that you see in, you know, there's very little broad comedy anymore on television. You know, the big hit sitcom shows and the way that, and the you know, people say the reason for that is that you don't have these shared conversations anymore. And this, in a way, is, is you know, this, this particular show's way, Roseanne's way of, of like, having the big conversations of our time. Um, yes, it was very on the nose. It wasn't particularly satisfactory to me. But it does something that I think is important in the show's ethos, which is to show what that all politics are about individuals, that it, you know, that what really matters is either how you get on with your family, how you support your family, how you love your family, or how you torture your family. I mean, 
I do not have any siblings, but I'm told by people who do that the sort of Jackie Roseanne sibling relationship is one that they enjoy as uh, as a model of a particularly tortured uh, sibling relationship. Um, and so, like, yeah, it didn't do anything for me politically. It was very obvious and, and, you know, not particularly moving the conversation forward. But it was a signal, you know, this is a signal that this show is... Not exactly. It's not going to go deep. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a PBS special, but they're going to wave at those big divisions in the country. Well, and it wasn't just like that wasn't the only sort of semi-didactic no. plot line. No. So alongside the fact that Roseanne is a Trump voter and Jackie's a Hillary voter, or actually, as we find out, actually, a, can I spoil that moment? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was, She's actually a Jill Stein voter. Because Roseanne messed with her head. <laughs> and she could just couldn't pull the lever for um, Hillary. Side note, in my in my reading on Roseanne, it turns out Roseanne has like a weird rivalry with Jill Stein oh from God. their time. Roseanne ran for president in 2012, uh, like, and she was in the Green Party, and like she and Jill Stein were just deep enemies. So like that joke has layers, weirdly. Um, But so the other thing alongside the Hillary Trump thing is that there's this very careful kind of virtue signaling happening throughout. There is like Roseanne really wants you to know that even though she's a Trump voter, she doesn't hate people. Right. Right. So there is one of her grandchildren is, um, would you say genderqueer? I would say like gender nonconforming. Gender nonconforming. Yeah. So she has a grandson who um, prefers to wear women's clothing or girls clothing. Sometimes. Exactly. And he doesn't think it's a big deal. His mom doesn't think it's a big deal. And it becomes a plot line. Um, where Roseanne becomes a warrior for it, right? Um, one of her other grandchildren is black. Um, her son DJ has a black child, and that is just like not discussed at all. It's just kind of thrown in, and I bet that they'll come back to that in a later episode. But that, you know, especially given Trump's, you know, b- both of those seem like meant to directly combat criticisms of Trump voters that they are, are hate mongers against uh, certain groups. And this show is all about tolerance, at yeah. least on its face. Yeah, totally. I mean, that- yeah, but I don't know, like, who who th- those sh- you said Roseanne wants you to know, like, I don't know which Roseanne wants right. you to know. I had mm-hmm. the sort of I really had the kind of Roxanne Gay Camille Nanjani response to that. Like, give, you're not allowed to be a Trump voter, like in this kind of superficial way without owning what it means to be a Trump Trump voter and what actual family conversations are like, which are much more uncomfortable than, you know, nasty woman T-shirt. And believe me, I know because they happen in my (laughs) my house of origin. It's like they get kind of ugly. And yet she you know, I had that like you're pulling one over on me, like you're papering this over by just embracing the kind of romantic notion of Trump voter. And I don't know who you is. I don't know if you is the liberal writers Mm -hmm. of the show um, or if you is the character Roseanne or if you is Roseanne, the creator, trying to help help us to forget what she tweets all the time, which is, you know, off like off the charts conspiracy theories about immigrants and, you know, groups of people. So what do you guys think? Like, how are we supposed to understand that virtue signaling? There's been such an interesting debate about this. Like, are we supposed to say, are we supposed to set it aside because, like, this is the show? How do we digest all of this contradiction? Well, not to be the person who always brings it back to uh, capitalism, but, I mean, it's television is business. Show business is business. And, you know, 18 million people is a sign that they're doing something right. 
This is about creating a product that will be interesting or uh that will just kind of titillate but not offend. See, I got really interested in the way this, I think, actually does track with Roseanne's personality and beliefs through the decades, right? So her main, she is just like an angry person. And that has always been a big part of her persona as a comic and as a TV creator. Um, She's talked about some stuff in her childhood that might have contributed to some of that, but like just anger and, and this deep sense of being an outsider and particularly an outsider to what she sees as the liberal establishment. And when she was making her TV show, that meant that she'd like really gotten some huge fights with people who were working on it and um, and like people within the Hollywood establishment. She hated, deeply hated the sort of like liberal Hollywood actresses. She had, I mean, she gave these quotes in this New Yorker article where she was like, they just care about things that feminism was about 25 years ago, like pay inequities. And she like cited Meryl Streep. And that quote could have been given yesterday. Right. Mm-hmm. So she sees herself and and that sort of explains how she might feel about someone like Hillary Clinton, who she obviously hates. And that sort of explains how she sees herself uh, as a total outsider and something like being a conspiracy theorist comes out of a really warped version of that, right? And so after Roseanne goes off the air, she sort of kind of doesn't get real work. Like she does things that don't really take off, but she's clearly like, you know, um, shot herself in the foot in terms of getting other work and being a real power broker in Hollywood despite the success of her show. And so I could see that sort of curdling her and really even more contributing to the sense of herself as an outsider in opposition with um, whatever the establishment is. And so I think that's how you get to someone like her who had been super, super lefty um, feminist, like talking about talking about intersectional feminism in 1995 when there people weren't doing that, like sort of yelling at people for not paying attention to what was happening in South Central instead of, you know, like uh, being really upset about their their, you know, rich ladies and their salaries. And so you can sort of see it track from there. And the show is interesting to me in that way, right, that she sees it as not actually a departure, probably, that she has always been tolerant of, you know, um, queer people in particular. She has two siblings who are gay like that. And 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 she has this history of being supportive of people of color. And so so to me, I think like sh- it's not actually coming out of a network. I mean, whatever. Yeah. It's a network TV yeah. show. They right. get notes, whatever. But like, I think it really is coming out of who Roseanne is. And like, maybe she's just this incredibly particular person, but also maybe um, you know, this narrative that we keep hearing about people who were Trump voters, it really being about this sense of outsiderness, even though they are, you know, the silent majority type of thing, that that is something that makes it worth paying attention to. That is an interesting view that I have not heard, Noreen, how to tie up the whole thing. <laughs> um, so so you've added yet another one. It's my conspiracy um, theory. My Roseanne <laughs> conspiracy, conspiracy theory. <laughs> about Roseanne. It's perfect. Um, listeners, if you were an old Roseanne fan, I guess the question I have is, how do you feel about watching it again? Like, do you feel like it's okay to watch it again, given who she is? Would you feel guilty about liking it? That was essentially Roxanne Gay's view. Like, I like this. I want to watch it, but I can't because of my political convictions. Or do you feel like, you know, you take the Noreen view, uh, this is all totally consistent with with who she's been throughout her career? Or do you just feel like it's a good TV show and I want to watch it? So... Any Roseanne fans out there, please write us either on our Facebook page, Double X Gabfest, or at doublexgabfest at slate.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Uh, let's move on to our next topic, Nor the trial of Noor Salman. Noor Salman was recently tried for obstruction of justice and aiding and abetting her husband, Omar Mateen, who was the shooter at the Pulse nightclub in Florida before he was shot dead. She was acquitted on all counts to the dismay of some of the survivors of the shooting and advocates in the gay community. But none of that resolves the question of whether she should have ever been put on trial in the first place because she was a victim of domestic abuse and much of her behavior could have been understood through that lens. Uh, the person who has taken this position most eloquently and written about it is Rachel Louise Snyder, who's writing a book about domestic violence and who covered the trial for The New Yorker and who is here with us today. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Yes, we're so glad to have you. Um, I have a very basic question, which is, could you just describe her, what she's like? Just give us a picture of Nora Salman as a as a person and the life that she lived with her husband. Who is she? Sure, absolutely. Um, before I answer that, though, I just want to make one one clarification, which is, um, I don't, I, I don't advocate for not putting a domestic violence victim on trial if they've committed a crime. So in her case, mm. the question was, how much she, did she know? Did she know? And that was the viewpoint of the prosecute. Uh, excuse me, that was the viewpoint of her defense team. She simply didn't know. In terms of what she was like. You know, this was very difficult for the family. She has a, a below average IQ. She has an IQ of about 84. She was in special ed classes throughout her life. She has an associate's degree, but it's from a for-profit college that is now defunct. And so um, the, the defense team brought in an expert witness to talk about suggestibility. Apparently, we all uh, operate on a spectrum of uh, suggestibility, and she ranked in the 99th percentile. So when she signed a confession saying that she had cased the Pulse nightclub with Omar Mateen a week before the shooting, um, her defense team was able to point out through this this uh, expert witness that, in fact, she ranks in this really high level of suggestibility. So she's very simple-minded. Her family describes her as um, kind of unable to see gray areas. The world is very black and white to her. Don't assume that she will understand something if you don't spell it out for her. Um, and I, th I think that's how she in some ways got into the situation that she was in was she spent 15 hours with or 12 hours with detectives um, and with FBI investigators. And after, oh, I don't know, four, five, six hours, she was exhausted and she began to um, confess to things that forensic evidence proved untrue. So, Rachel, one of the things that was interesting in your coverage was that the FBI, at least as was represented in the trial, expressed a view that she didn't seem surprised or they didn't they didn't like the or they they judged harshly. I'm not quite sure exactly how to put it. Her response when she was told that her husband had been killed, you know, they said that she wasn't emotional enough. She just didn't give the right. She didn't give the response that they were looking for. Um, and that really you know, stood out to me because that feels like, you know, law enforcement judging people based on 
what they expect rather than how people truly are. And especially when you kind of introduce this extra complication of, well, she had been abused by him. So can you talk about how that played out in the trial itself and and how big of a factor that was in, in the way that she was uh, in the choice to prosecute her even perhaps? That was an amazing moment, I have to say. FBI Special Agent TJ, I don't know how to say his last name, Sipnuski or something like that. Nobody could pronounce his name. Um, He got on the stand and he was the one who told her that her husband had died. Uh, Omar Mateen was shot by uh, police around 5.17 in the morning and she found out that her husband had died around 8.30. So there was a gap there. And this FBI agent testified that she had been absolutely non-emotional, that she hadn't had hadn't asked any questions, uh, that she looked away for a moment and then made eye contact again. And what was incredible about that, I happened to be in the media overflow room when he was testifying, and there was an audible gasp by all of us because just a day earlier, his his uh, co interviewer who was also in the room, a man named Christopher Mayo, another FBI special agent, had testified one day earlier that, in fact, she had broken down sobbing. And so you had these two absolutely disparate testimonies. And that was one of many, many times where you had um, contradictory testimonies by the FBI. Christopher Mayo also said at one point that she went into the corner of the room and curled up and went to sleep. You know, she had been up all night, essentially, being interviewed. Uh, uh, his counterpart, uh, TJ, as I call him, um, said she never never left her chair. So there were all these things where it was like, y- you knew that the jury was just going, well, which one of these is correct? And can we trust this this institution when its agents are coming on saying different different things. And so it just, it it spoke to, I think, in some way, an inconsistency. um, But also, one of the uh, larger elements that defense hammered on during the trial was the fact that that the FBI didn't record this interview. She was never a suspect, and she wasn't under arrest. So they didn't record her. I'm more curious in what went into the decision to put her on trial, because the things you're describing, and there are plenty of people on death row with low IQs um, who have not had the most fair trial, who have been subject to inconsistent uh, questioning or, you know, uh, bullying questioning by various authorities. But in this case, there was this extra thing, which is that she was the wife um, and, uh, and in a manipulative situation. Can you talk about how that uh, played into the trial? Because it doesn't sound like the defense brought that up very much. That was something that that you and others were bringing up as a factor. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke to her family about this, and I spoke to the the lawyers about this. And, and you know, from, from the lawyer's perspective, they said, it's terrible that she's that she was so, so abused. But the larger point for us is she simply didn't know. So the abuse is one thing. But the bigger point in terms of, of you know, uh, trying to get an acquittal for her is that she didn't know any of what he was doing. From the standpoint of her family, you know, she lived in a situation where she and Omar Mateen met online and she lived in California. He lived in Florida. He flew out with his parents to meet her in September of 2011, I believe it was. And they got engaged on that same trip. And then they were married just a few months later. So they really didn't know each other. 
and he moved her to Florida, and she was completely isolated there. She only saw her family one other time before the shooting, and that was when her dad died, and Omar Mateen let her go home for three days to California. He never went himself. Um, she was not allowed to work. He gave her $20 a week in uh, a, a kind of allowance. He was terribly abusive. He beat her. There was forced sex. There was uh, beatings while while she was pregnant, which is a particular type of violence. A lot of abusers will lay off when a woman is pregnant. Um, the more dangerous type tend to increase their violence when a woman is pregnant. So there were all these signs. Of course, he had access to a gun and, um, you know, bought a, a a number, a number of guns, including an AR-15, a Sig Sauer, um, right before the shooting, a couple of weeks before the shooting. So she lived in this coerced environment where um, he had a secret life. You know, he cheated on her all the time. He um, accessed all kinds of websites, not only not only the ones we know about ISIS and beheadings and calls to arm calls to arms during Ramadan, but he also accessed um, porn sites. He looked up uh, healthy masturbation. He was on dating sites, um, Arab dating sites. And so she she knew none of this. And the defense's point was like, look, she lived in an environment where her husband sort of ruled with an iron fist. And she, you know, she meanwhile is looking up Hello Kitty watches and, you know, leather jackets on eBay. Rachel, can you talk about um, this text message that seems to have been sort of important to um, the prosecution's case that... I found a little bit confusing um, the way that it was used by each side. So there were a couple of text messages. I think you're talking about the one where she says, um, if your mom calls, tell her you went to dinner with Nemo and I don't want to go to the to the mosque. Is that the one? You're yes. About? Yes. Yeah. It implied that she was setting up an alibi. Right. That was the yep. idea that the prosecution yeah. said. Right. Yes, exactly. It was like what the prosecution said was she gave him a cover story. And what the defense was, I mean, I think that text is is to any sort of thinking person obvious in terms of its ability to be manipulated by either side. Um, She did not like going to mosque. She never wore the hijab. She was not particularly religious. The night in question was uh, the first weekend of Ramadan in 2016. And so his whole family was going to break their fast at the mosque. And she had a long history of trying to get out of going to the mosque. And so um, what the defense said was, uh, you know, I've just talked to your mom. She had talked to his mother at like 5 or 5.30 earlier that evening and had told his mom that he wanted to go to dinner with this friend, Nemo. Nemo was a, a, a friend of his who lived in um, – I think he was in Baltimore at the time, but would come down and visit his family and was originally from the area. So Omar Mateen often used him as an excuse when he would um, cheat on his wife. And so she knew that um, Nemo was somebody that – that her husband would hang around with, or she believed that he would hang around with them. Actually, he was cheating on her half the time. But um, so when when she talked to his mother, she said, "You know, oh, Omar wants to go to dinner with Nemo, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stay home with with our son. Um, make sure he get goes to bed early." And so when when Omar texted her, um, she she simply was saying, "You know, tell your mom that you want to go to dinner with." with Omar or with uh, Nemo and I'm going to be, you know, and I don't want to go to mosque. So, you know, it was, it was a cover 
for her not going to mosque from the defense's perspective. And the prosecution said, no, no, they made up this story for her. Um, Rachel, can I ask a, a really basic question, which is, you know, the the reason for this prosecution of Nur Salman apparently is that, you know, if she did know, then, well, honestly, to me, it feels righteous that she should have been prosecuted. At the same time, like, I also have this question of why didn't why didn't the authorities know about this abuse? Why didn't they intercede? We seem to be just sort of accepting that, oh, man, she just had, she was suffering from this terrible abuse as if there was no responsibility for anyone, for law enforcement or anyone else to intervene. Like, am I, is that an inappropriate feeling on my part? Or like, because I just feel this, this tension that I can't really quite, um, I can't decide which, where I'm supposed to, what I'm supposed to feel about that. Yeah, yeah. June, all of your feelings are welcome and appropriate here, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> you know, um, it's a good question. Her her aunt says, I mean, her aunt really believes she's a Muslim woman, and that is why she was prosecuted. Because you look at any any other um, mass shooting situation, the estranged wife in Sutherland Springs, Texas, the wife of the the Boston bomber. Um, you know, n- no one else has been prosecuted. The 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 Las Vegas shooter's girlfriend has not been prosecuted. So, you know, I I, I can understand where they're coming from. And I, I agree that if she knew, she should have said something. But I also think it's like that, you know, that Kierkegaard, <laughs> life must be lived forward but understood backwards, right? I think when you look back, you can see this escalation. But when you're living in a day-to-day and so much of it is secret, it, it's hard to know. Um, the other thing that's important in her case, there's two things I would mention. One, in 2013, he was investigated by the FBI. He made... Uh, extremist statements at work. He was a security guard. Uh, his coworkers called the FBI. The FBI came and investigated him, and it turned out this came out in trial after the prosecution rested their case. Came out that his father was an informant for the FBI for eleven years. It was a shocking moment, actually. And so there's some question about whether or not um, he was sort of cleared very quickly by the FBI because his father was an informant, and in fact. The FBI had considered uh, grooming Omar Mateen to be an informant back in 2013. So, you know, you have to think from from a victim's perspective, she knows her husband was questioned by the FBI. She was apparently in another room. She was told to be in the bedroom. Um, She served them cake. One of the the interviewers said, oh, it's very good cake on the stand. and so when the when the most powerful law enforcement body clears your husband, who else would you go to if you did suspect anything, right? Again, she's got an 84 IQ. Even if she thinks something is up, he's already been cleared. What's going to happen if she calls and they come and they clear him again? What's going to happen to her, right? So I think that's mm. one thing. The other thing is – his first wife, he was married uh, very briefly in 2009, and his first wife talked to a couple of, of media outlets about the abuse that she endured. Her parents came down and essentially rescued her. Now, when his mother took the stand, pro- the defense asked about this and said, wasn't it true that Omar Mateen was holding her hostage and her parents came to you and said – your son is holding our daughter hostage. We need to get her out of there. And his mother said, no, no, no. They just said that 
you know, they came to pick her up. There was nothing about that. So, you know, that's a bit of hearsay. I don't know the reality. But he had strangled her and she had called the police. And uh, he was never charged with that. And and strangulation is a felony in Florida. He could Mm. have, under federal law, served 10 years in prison, which would have made him in would have put him in prison the night of the Pulse shooting. So, Rachel, let me ask you this last thing, because the thing with all these details, um, what I what I want to know is uh, what is what what is the takeaway Um, in your coverage of the trial is 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 your conclusion um, she never should have been put on trial or is your conclusion just that the courts need to be more aware of the role that domestic violence plays in complicity with your abuser's actions? Well, yes and yes. I mean, I th- I think mm-hmm. it's I think she should have never put on been put on trial. I mean, th- she was free to go after her 12, 14, 15 hour interview with the FBI and she was free for the next 7 months and she never tried to leave the country. She never tried to uh uh, you know, establish contact with ISIS. I mean, she was just living her life, raising her son, living with her family. So I think I think that's one thing is that that her case was shaky from the start from the the perspective of the prosecution. But the larger takeaway for me is that domestic violence is a canary in a coal mine and people want to find blood and they want to find bruises all the time and they don't realize that the the reality of domestic violence is that once you have someone under your control, you don't ever have to lay a hand on them. And that has proven time and time again. I can't tell you the number of people that I have interviewed, victims, um, uh, abusers. I've sat in on a lot of batterers intervention programs because we need to be talking to them too. Um, advocates, lawyers, uh, 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 detectives. And I think we need to take domestic violence much more seriously than we do as a kind of warning sign that somebody is dangerous. That is an excellent point. Rachel, before we let you go, do you have a title for your upcoming book, which I imagine will elaborate on some of these themes? I do. It's called No Visible Bruises, How What We Don't Know About Violence Can Kill Us. Well, everyone should look out for that book. And Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, on to our final topic, babies who are babies raised as a they. Um, I have to say, this this comes from a story in New York Magazine. Noreen pointed it out to us. I, it took me like an hour to figure out how to pronounce it because I'm stupid. <laughs> it's like, how else could it be pronounced? So what did you like, think it was? They I guys? don't know. I was like, they buy. Like, maybe it's buy, like two genders. I couldn't figure it out. Anyway, uh, it is about, is <laughs> a really interesting article, a small cohort of parents who decided to not tell the world what gender their child was born in an effort to eradicate the toxic effects of gender stereotyping. Uh, one interesting point, they don't like the term gender neutral, so we're going to all try not to use that term. They like more positive terms, which I think go along with baby rearing, like gender open, gender creative. Uh, and they the hope, I think, is to raise more organically gender fluid children, or at least children who are aware of gender fluidity. So maybe Noreen, could you start by describing like some of the like some of the decisions the parents made, like in the hospital, just the kind of mechanics of this to get people's minds around what these parents are actually doing? Yeah, for sure. And and just a distinction that I think is really important to these parents is that they would say, what they don't reveal is the sex of their baby because sex is medically assigned. Sex is like the body part that you are born with and gender is sort of the expression of your um, your maleness or femaleness or, or your um, 
you know, your non-binariness. So what this looks like, if you decide that you want to have a baby. Put it in the hospital. Like the hospital comes, like when I gave birth to my baby, the very first thing the nurse is like, it's a boy, it's a girl. Like they, you know, your whole, everybody's like penis or no penis. That's basically the first thing anybody's thinking when <laughs> right. the baby is born. <laughs> right. So this, for these parents, it starts before that. They have to sort of prep, you know, not just relatives who want to know what are you having, a boy or a girl, but also the medical professionals and say, we just don't want to know, right? Like, they don't. And some of these families actually do find out the sex of the baby. They just don't want it broadcast and they don't want it made, you know, part of this. Um, so in the hospital, right, they they request that they are not told the sex of the baby. Um, they they have to have all these conversations with family members where they say they have to explain their thinking. Um, when the child is a little older and it's time for daycare or preschool, then you have to get the preschool on board um, with literally just not saying, oh, he he was good with his blocks today. It has to be they was good with they's blocks today, which or they were good with their blocks today, right? <laughs> right. So this is this is like I think part of the hard part is that like people like me who had like certain kinds of subject verb agreement like <laughs> drilled into our heads a million years ago. It's like even with the best intentions, sometimes can be complicated. Um, so yeah, you have to make sure that your preschool teacher is on board. The other, I mean. Most of the parents in the article, you know, the preschool teachers were on board. The place where it got more complicated was the parents of other children, you know, who might be like annoyed by this who or who might just inadvertently do mm. it, you know. Um, and then and then if you've made it this far, eventually your child will choose its own gender. Um, so for these families, it seems to happen around two or three um, the kid says, I'd like to be a girl. And it's not like these families avoid discussions of what a girl is or what a boy is. Um, but what they try to do is break down stereotypes. So I think there are a few different reasons why a family might do this. One is to sort of avoid um, a lot of the early gendering that happens, right? That like that literally boy babies are treated differently than girl babies, even in the even in the families of the best of intentions, like you might push the boy baby to walk farther than the girl baby, right? Like all that and and like later on in childhood, uh, boys get higher allowance than girls. That oh, one goodness. for some reason really bugged me. So one reason you might do this is to try to break that down. Another reason for a lot of these parents, a lot of the parents who are doing this are themselves uh genderqueer or uh gay and um, they want to sort of provide for the possibility that their child might not believe that the the sex they were born with aligns lines up with the gender that they feel, or they they might be non-binary. So they want to sort of like clear the ground for that, so that um, you know the child wouldn't have to go through the process of um, transitioning. And then the third reason is like this is me saying this now, I think it's some virtual signaling again. Maybe that's the theme of this podcast a little bit, but it is, you know, for some of these parents, it's a little bit like putting a stake in the ground and saying we are allies in this fight and we are such allies that we are raising, you know, the biggest thing that we are doing as a couple raising this child, we are doing it with full commitment to our values. What do you guys think of this uh, this whole movement? I want to hear from Hannah because Hannah is a parent. I love it. I've thought about it a lot. And, you know, there have been such gender experiments in the past, which 
went disastrously and which felt like child abuse, <laughs> like where, you know, people just because of their own political convictions, I'm not going to name any families, but I've like done reporting on it in my life in the past. And it just was hard on the kids and it was too soon. And it felt like forcing a philosophy down a kid's throat. Why does this feel different to me? The reason I think this one struck me as okay and pretty cool is because one, the moment in time that it's happening, mm. if you, you know, it'd be hard if you live in certain parts of the country, but if you live in Brooklyn, where I'm sure, you know, 97% of these people live, it seems like, okay, you, you think really the parents are going to freak out about it. It's just the right moment. I mean, it's on Roseanne, for God's sake, has a grandson <laughs> wearing like sparkle and dresses to school. It's the most ma mainstream show there is. And so it's not such a shocking concept anymore. You're not setting up your child to be belittled and mocked, especially if you live in certain places. So it doesn't seem that hard on a kid. Second, I'm genuinely extremely curious about the the, the kind of pre-conscious effect of gender separation. That is a time when people are most comically interested in gender and separation. You know, like, yes. is it a boy? Is it a girl? Are they wearing pink or are they wearing blue? It's not like <clears throat> as grownups, we do that. Like, we don't care that much about gender. A little later, it's we don't divide in the workplace like girls sit on one side, boys sit on the other side. <laughs> but in the very early years, it's this total fixation, mm -hmm. you know. So all those studies that say like children prefer this toy or they prefer that toy and even monkeys prefer this toy or they prefer that toy. Like, I'm sure that's true to some extent that like boys track cars. I'm sure there's some, you know, we've been evolutionarily split for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. I'm sure there's some reason why boys like toy cars, you know, that I don't fully understand or that nobody fully understands. But there's so much gendering in those early years mm -hmm. that I just think it's kind of interesting to tell people, like, leave it alone. Like, don't say everything is a girl and everything is a boy before my child can even think, you know? I think it's, I mean, I'm all for it. I think it's super useful as um, for the other people, like the people tangentially involved to just be questioning why we place so much emphasis on gender. Like if you don't know if someone is a girl or a boy, how, what, why, why does that freak you out? Yeah. Not freak you out. Why does that matter to you? Why do you, you know, how does that affect what you say to the child, how you treat the child? Like that's super interesting and also really useful because as you say, Hannah, undoubtedly, we're all far too hung up on it. But I do, in my experience with little kids, they have a really deep need for categorization mm -hmm. in part because they are figuring out the world. Like, they, you know, trucks do this. Like, you know, this is a fruit. Like, yeah. this is a boy. This is a girl. And so I'm interested in what that looks like, whether the kids themselves, like how much they're able to wrap their minds around that. Like, I mean, kids have much more adaptable minds than adults do. And so that is why this experiment is precisely so interesting. But I also could see it being like a little bit of a mindfuck for a two-year-old to be like, well, gender and sex are different. Like, yeah, it's a mindfuck yeah. for, you know, adults exactly, to think exactly. that through. I know. And I remember having, I mean, speaking of categorization, I had this really extended view of of gender that, ex that extends like what gender animals were our fruits were our colors were like there were girl colors and girl animals and like it so yeah <laughs> it, it it is a very we we 
we just project so much onto this. I mean, Noreen, the thing about concepts and categories, I think the next, and I'm sure we'll have this on the podcast over the years coming, the next big conflict is between our ideology and the ease of gender fluidity um, and kind of race consciousness and sort of new biological and neurological findings about race categories and gender categories, which this guy David Reich wrote an op-ed about, which people were very up in arms, how genetics is changing our understanding of race. All of our listeners read it. You guys read it. Maybe we'll talk about it one time. It was very interesting and changed my mind in a lot of things. But for example, this concept thing, this thing about categories, it turns out like that's literally the way we operate. I mean, for what I understand in neurology, it's like literally how our brains function and go through the day is by creating concepts and categories so we don't have to take all the information in. I can't really fully explain this, but it's very deep. Do you know what I mean? And so it's not exactly just a social construct. Mm -hmm. It's the way we are. And so and so I think it's just like where the rubber meets the road. We're going to get to a kind of deeper philosophical clash between what we believe and what we are biologically and neurologically, which I think is good because I think it's more honest and then we can make more honest decisions about gender and categories like that. Sorry, that was a little hard to understand, but I promise that over the months I'll try and understand it a little better so I can explain it better in future topics. Well, what before we move on, I just wanted to linger a little bit over the question of what it actually looks like for the kid. I mean, so as you said, Hannah, most of these kids are being raised in liberal communities. Interestingly, it's more the Pacific Northwest and Canada than uh, Brooklyn, although probably mm-hmm. Brooklyn too. Um, but but. I, That to me is the biggest potential argument against something like this is that it would, even in a place like, you know, Seattle, other the kid um, and set them up to be uh, just socially ill at ease to be to be teased or bullied or or even to just themselves badly want to fit in and not be able to because their parents have made them this special social experiment, you know, and that is the one place where it gives me pause where I'm like, okay, like, you know, is this the parents imposing their dream of what they want the world to be on an individual? Yes, absolutely, is what I would say. It depends on the sensitivity of the parent. All of parenting is a project of imposing your viewpoints on a <laughs> child. And then after a certain age, that becomes impossible. So unfortunately, most of these kids are too young to know whether parents are pushing it too far. You know, they, the the ones profiled were actually fairly sensitive to the moment when their child tried to step out of the experiment. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the thing you could do wrong is not recognize that, say, you have a child who's very sensitive or you have a child who is being bullied or othered just because of who the child is or is just not strong enough to tolerate this experiment. So if you missed that moment, then yes, you would that would be a a a, a parenting error. Right. Um and and sad. But but I but if the if you know, like if you know your kid and the kid's cool with it, um especially in young ages, it seems okay. Well, let's move on to our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have for us today? I read a novel this week that Normally, I try to like make my recommendations sort of double XY, and this is just not. It's it's actually something that I avoided for a while because it just seems like one of those like male overly celebrated literary genius kind of things. But I really love this book, so so if you too have been avoiding it for similar prejudices, I would argue that you shouldn't. Um, it's called Ten O Four by Ben Lerner. And uh, it's one of these somewhat diaristic novels. It basically tells the story of a of a narrator who very much resembles Ben Lerner, uh, the author, 
um, and poet, uh, kind of kind of living in Brooklyn in between two hurricanes that hit New York a few years ago in between um, hurricanes Irene and Sandy. And it talks about him writing a book and, um, you know, thinking of having thinking of donating or, or just becoming a parent to his best friend who who, you know, wants his sperm and, uh, you know, dealing with a medical crisis. There's not very much that happens. Um, and there is a little bit of overly experimental fiction writing that normally turns me off. But I thought it really worked in this book. And he is just such an interesting mind, an interesting writer of sentences and constructor of um, scenarios that I just really loved this book, uh, 10.04 by Ben Lerner. Yes, I've been curious about that book. So good. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I'm also going to recommend a book. I was on vacation, very little internet access. Thank you, by the way, all of our listeners for sending me recommendations for what to do in Colombia, which is such a fabulous country. So thank you all for those. Uh, the The book that I'm going to recommend is a bestseller. It is Educated by Tara Westover. It is a fabulous book. It's about her being raised by a conspiratorial, very conspiratorial off-the-grid, homeschooling Mormon family, and then making her way up through education to the highest levels. It's a beautifully written book. And it taught me something about myself, which is why education is important. Like when you're when you're sort of like when you're sort of crawling your way out of your origins, um, education is not important just because of the institution of education, but because it gives you alternate viewpoints. Like if you grow up with parents and they have one very strong conspiratorial view of the world, education just gives you the basic knowledge that there are 27 views of the world and that you you're not trapped in the one. But it's a very compelling and beautifully written book by Tara Westover, educa- Educated, it's called. Mm. June, what do you have? I'm going to recommend a television show. Cool. <laughs> uh, it's an Irish show called Striking Out, which is available on Acorn, which is a streaming service that specializes in foreign shows. Um, and it's a legal drama. Uh, it involves like conspiracies and and sexual tension. And it's it's just one of those shows that you just want to press next episode uh, it makes Dublin look absolutely gorgeous, which, of course, we know it is, and it pops off to a few other parts of Ireland. Um, but I also want to mention, as much as I enjoyed it, it has one of the worst theme tunes that a television <laughs> show has ever had, and it became an absolute obsession in my house. Like, I would be singing along with it, even though it is just objectively terrible. And now, at various moments, I will tell my partner... No Jesus, no wrecking ball, which is the final, <laughs> is the final lines of the show and it, of the of the theme tune. And it, those words have nothing to do with anything, anything, <laughs> or they apply to everything. Or they apply to everything, indeed. So, uh, really great show, really terrible theme tune. But I want people to watch it so that I can share that reference with more people. So, wait, is the idea there that the person wants the wrecking ball? Like, if you don't give me Jesus, I won't give you the wrecking ball. Or is no, it just like get Jesus out of my life, get the wrecking ball? Out you're of my you're life? asking if what, if this is no woman, no cry, or no woman. Yeah, no exactly. Cry. Exactly. Uh, I can't tell you because honestly, the words make no sense, and the tune is tuneless. But it is, it is my new obsession. So striking out. Yeah, I think so. That's how we should start every show from now on. Yeah. That's amazing. Jesus, no wrecking ball. <laughs> Well, thank you all. Thanks to our producer, Verilyn Williams, our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Listeners, we are asking you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a recommendation. We would love that. That's how other people find out about the show. 
Uh, and yes, rate, review us, tell us what you think. And you can also tweet us personally. We're all our names. So at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, or at Hannah Rosen. We would love to hear from you. That is our show for today. For June and Noreen, no Jesus, no wrecking ball. I'm Hannah Rosen. See you next week. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.